0: As you're seated, you can turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Lord willing, we will finish chapter 2 this evening with this letter to the church at Thyatira. Revelation, chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, Thus says the Son of God, whose eyes like a, like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's pray one final time and ask God's help this evening. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a a speaking God, that you reveal yourself to us through, through your word, We thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us understand these truths. Might he be working in our midst this evening to bring us to greater understanding and commitment to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We're living in an increasingly secularized society. And the pressures coming from the progressivist moral impulse of that secularizing society makes it all the more difficult, frankly, for conservative biblical Christians to stand in one place without facing a great deal of secular opposition. But that's actually our calling. Our calling is to stay within the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is to stand on biblical authority, and it's also to think through these issues comprehensively on biblical conviction and understanding the nature of truth. That was said this week on on Al Mohler's podcast called "The Briefing" uh, this past Wednesday. And I, as I was listening to that, uh, as he was addressing the issue related to uh, Andy Stanley and, and compromise with the with the homosexuality uh, movement. I thought these words make sense to the church in Thyatira as well. That as we face a culture, it's not the religiously pagan culture of the the Greco-Roman world, but it is a pagan culture, and it's a secular pagan culture, and as that increases and grows more and more, uh, we, we have greater pressure that we feel there's a there is a there is greater pressure to conform uh, to the culture and that's what he was addressing on the on the briefing where some have conformed more to the cultural oppressor but what is our calling as he reminds us it's to stay within the faith once for all delivered to the saints it's to it's to be committed to the truth and so once again tonight we meet a church that is in a secular or in a pagan culture and is feeling the pressure of that pagan culture and, and uh, to be conformed to that culture. And that's what we have at the church at Thyatira. Now just uh, real briefly, how do you say this church's name? I would always call it Thyatira. Uh, then I heard my, my Bible reading uh, called it Thyatira, and then I heard someone say it's actually pronounced Theatira. So uh, you can say whatever you want, I think, uh, and that's fine. Uh, so if you hear any, I might say, more than one way uh, tonight, I don't think there's one exact way to pronounce it. As we compare this church's situation to that in Pergamum, it's, it's essentially identical. Uh, the, the teaching in, in one way or another is identical, although uh, maybe the, the infection of that teaching was greater in Thyatira. And so we don't always know exactly what is the unique circumstances, and so sometimes we have to use an informed uh, imagination. Thyatira, though, is the longest of the letters, of the seven letters, and it comes at the center of the seven letters, so there are three on each side of that, and remember, when we talked about the letters in general, we said that they form a chiastic structure that is sort of an X structure where the the two outside letters mirror each other in some ways and, 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 and all all the way into the center, and, and this is the center. And we said that maybe what was being said by having something like this in the center is that the general condition of the church throughout history is one of a mixed bag. And we'll see maybe something else later on of why this church is in the center there. And so let's let's dive in. Our familiar outline there, number one, the church address. The city of Thyatira was maybe not as prominent as, as some of the other cities, but it was not an insignificant city in the Greco-Roman world. They had a thriving textile industry. They had associations of dyers, wool merchants, linen workers, potters, tanners, leather cutters, and bakers. In fact, interestingly, the only other time Thyatira is mentioned in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 16 when Paul is preaching in Philippi, and the, one of the first converts there was a woman by the name of Lydia. And Acts tells us that Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods, which makes perfect sense because of the, that kind of textile industry that did thrive there. And so these are one of those side comments of the Bible that all the more confirm uh, its historical rootedness, that you can't, it's hard to make those things up. Uh, It was a regional center in the Asian slave trade. Often when discussing this church, the, the various trade guilds. Were, were, are emphasized, which were a part of this city. And they were part of all of these cities that we're talking about uh, here. That the religious setting was the same. Uh, of both pagan and an imperial cult were present there. And remember that Roman religion was one of religious accommodation. That when the Romans came in, they you know, you can keep your gods but you have to take on our gods as well. And, and, and so we don't have a problem unless you don't want to worship our gods as well. So the exclusivity of the Christian faith was a problem in this society. That, that No, we can't participate at all in your pagan idolatry. But once again, as we've said over and over, religion wasn't just a a private thing you did. It was central to all of society. And so to not participate in the the religious practices was to be sort of ostracized uh, to a point from the society. So there would have been uh, lots of temptations, lots of opportunities to participate in this pagan idolatry. So all you need is a theology that supports such accommodation, and then you have a recipe for disaster. That's exactly uh, what was happening, as we'll see uh, uh, later on. We don't know the beginnings of this church. It it began at some point in in the first century and had time at least to exist, because Jesus can say, your latter works exceed your first. And so we don't know the background, but a Christian church was formed here. Number two now, uh, the characteristic of Christ's emphasized It says the words, or remember, it's not in our translation, but really, thus says the Son of God. This is that prophetic utterance that we get from the Old Testament. The words of the Son of God. This is the only place in Revelation where Jesus is directly called the Son of God. And as we've noted before, that these characteristics of Christ come from chapter 1. But the term uh, Son of God doesn't occur in, in chapter 1. And so, what is being said here and why is this used? Some think it's being used synonymously with Son of Man, which is, which is used in chapter 1. And the reason for that is is the connection of Daniel seven's vision uh, of the Son of Man, but also Daniel II's uh, with the, the three men in the furnace, and one like a son uh, of, of the gods appears. And so some like to see a connection there. But really it's used, I think, because there's a royal connotation with the with the title, Son of God, as it relates uh, to the Davidic throne. That in 2 Samuel 14, the promise to David and his offspring is that I will be uh, to, this, to this heir, uh, to him a father. Or Psalm 2, which picks up on the, those promises uh, to, to David's heir. That as for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so this... this Davidic heir was a son of God, and so Jesus is the son of God. He is the heir of David. And as we'll see, this letter emphasizes Jesus' ruling authority, and so uh, we would want to see these royal connotations come through in the title. I do think there is one unique historical uh, aspect that may be a reason why the son of God was used. That Thyatira at one point was destroyed by an earthquake in 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 B.C., uh, 25 B.C., and the Romans helped rebuild the city, and so uh, because of that, the city quickly built a stoa with colonnades and dedications to Augustus, and they called him Son of God. So here's Jesus writing to this church in a city where someone else is proclaimed Son of God, and Jesus says, thus says the Son of God, the real and only Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Once again, these fiery eyes of of purity, of, of penetrating knowledge. Jesus sees his church perfectly. Jesus knows the condition of his church. His feet are like burnished bronze. This is an imagery of of a military commander. These strong, uh, metallic feet. Jesus is described from head to toe, as it were here, as a royal, military figure. So that's the characteristic of Christ emphasized. Three, the commendation... Given. As with uh, most of the churches in, in chapters 2 and 3, there is a mix of good and bad, and the same is true to the letter uh, here to Thyatira. Verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus says, once again, I know. I I know your works. I know your good deeds. And what are these works? I think works is described by the the subsequent terms. Love, faith, service, patient, endurance. These are the works that the Thessalonians had. That in 1 Thessalonians 1-3, Paul tells the Thessalonian church, Remembering before our God and, and Father your work of faith your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. One other verse that connects these is Titus 2.2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Same word here, uh, endurance. So a mark of a mature man and a mark of a maturing body is one that's growing in love And as we saw in in Ephesus, this is a love that that works out tangibly in service, uh, self-sacrificial service to the brothers. It it grows in faith uh, and trust in God, in faithfulness. It, It could have that connotation here too, commitment to God. It grows in service, this Same idea that we discussed this morning in Romans of of we all can grow in this serving one another. And you've grown in your endurance, your your, your steadfastness to me. And what a wonderful commendation this is to to the church that at your beginning you did have love and faith and service and steadfastness. But now after, after several years, you've grown in that. And what a wonderful commendation. That was not said of Ephesus. It, what was said of Ephesus, you left your first love. You had a love for one another at first, and as your, your, your time went on, that dissipated. Well, that's not true here in Thyatira. That grew over the time of, of the lifetime of this congregation. So what a wonderful commendation. We We wish the letter would end here and we could say amen. But it doesn't. And, and most of the, and the majority of the letter is now taken up uh, in critique. And likely because the critique is so sharp uh, that we don't get too many more details about what this uh, love, faith, service, and endurance was. So that's the commendation given forth, the correction and call to repentance. Jesus says, I I have this against you. And we've seen this several times now, that Jesus views the church, and he knows all that's going on, and he will offer his critique. What is is going on here? You're you're tolerating that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So once again, the teaching is, is similar here, that there was a teaching that was seeking to allow uh, this congregation uh, to accommodate and assimilate more to the culture around it and to participate in what would ultimately be idolatry and sexual immorality. And who's behind this teaching? This woman Jezebel. That was likely not her name, but a, a nickname given to her because of her character and her behavior. She's called Jezebel because she's acting like the Old Testament figure of Jezebel. It's like calling someone in our country a Benedict Arnold. That, that word, that name has been associated with a traitor. And so calling someone Jezebel is not a positive term. Why, who is this historical Old Testament figure? We learn in in, uh, 1 Kings chapter 16 that Ahab marries this woman Jezebel. And it says, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. That that Ahab did what he shouldn't have done as the king of Israel, which is marry a pagan woman, and and she is going to be a huge influence on him and a huge influence for uh, the bad on Israel society. In chapter 21 and 25, verse 25 of 1 Kings, we're told that, that Jezebel, uh, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, had incited. So who, who's behind a lot of this wickedness in, in uh, Ahab's life? It's his wife, Jezebel. That later on in, in 2 Kings chapter 9, uh, Jehu... Uh, <clears throat> describing Jezebel, says, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother, Jezebel, are so many? Her actions are called whorings and sorceries. So Jezebel is one of the most prominent of Old Testament women known for her evil and known for leading God's people to evil, leading them into Baal worship, encouraging that. Remember after Elijah on Mount Carmel shows, and through this little contest with the prophets of Baal, that that the Lord uh, is the supreme God. Uh, Jezebel, hearing of this, and that he put the prophets of Baal to death, sent him a message and says, I'm going to put you to death. This is the same woman that when her husband is is, uh, uh, sulking around because he wants a certain piece of property, goes and kills Naboth to give his vineyard. It's a cruel, she's a wicked woman. And so this is the figure used to describe uh, this false teacher here in Thyatira. She's not a godly woman. She calls herself a prophetess but she is no prophetess. So what what was this woman in in Thyatira doing, analogous to uh, the one in Israel? Well, like the Old Testament Jezebel, this woman was causing God's people to fall into idolatry and sexual immorality. She seduced, We're, we're told she is seducing my servants to To practice sexual morality, she's functioning like a prostitute. She's pulling my people, my servants, away from their pure devotion to me and causing them to commit idolatry and sexual morality. These are common images in in the book of Revelation, both idolatry and sexual morality. And we noted last week they're connected, that idolatry is probably the central figure. And sexual morality can be used as a metaphor as unfaithfulness to God, unfaithfulness to His covenant. Likely there was sexual morality involved in some sense. Sometimes in these trade guilds there would be banquets to to these deities and they would they would devolve into all sorts of immoral behaviors. So maybe part of uh, what was going on here was uh, she was saying, hey, you can participate in these, these pagan benefits, and the people were co-opt into, into sexual morality, into idolatry, ultimately. So once again, seducing uh, the people of God away from faithfulness to their Lord. And Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. What a mercy of God. This wicked woman is, is leading your people astray and you, but you've given her even an opportunity to repent. You've given her an opportunity to turn from her sin. But, but that, that only lasts at a time because now judgment is coming. She's not repenting. She's clear in what she wants to do. So I'm going to judge her. Jesus would not stand by and just allow her to continually infect his people. So he said, I, I'm going to, I will throw her onto a sick bed. The word is really just for bed here, but sick is, is likely what the result of her being in bed is. Why throw her in bed? Two, two connotations are likely at work here. One is its association with sexual immorality. The bed is the symbol of the place where this occurs. So Jesus could be saying, you want to you go to bed? I'll send you to bed. Sick. As one commentator notes, she who profaned the bed of love is pinned to the bed of sickness. Secondly, a bed could be a reference to a couch here. And these would have been couches used to sit at, at these pagan meals where this idolatry and other immorality would, would have occurred. So Jesus, once again, could be saying the same thing. You want to sit in these couches and, and, and lead my people into idolatry? I'll, I'll let you lay on a couch sick. So, likely both of those meanings, I think, are at work here. Revelation likens festive dining on a couch to sexual morality in bed. So, this is the old uh, lex talionis the, the punishment fits the crime. That, that you, you, you do that, you want to you wanna lead my people astray, I'll throw you in a sickbed. And so she's judged. And likely death was to follow for her. But also the, the participants with her are judged. And, and she, as, as the teacher, is, is, has a greater responsibility. But those who, who do participate and, and, and are led astray are also culpable for their sins. So Jesus says, and, I, and those who commit adultery with her once again, maybe this is, a, this is an imagery here of, of something else greater than that. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. That, that those of, of my servants were told, who have been co-opted by this woman, who, who have been seduced by his woman, and they are not repenting of their sin, I won't let them continue in their sin. That I'm going to give them great. Tribulation, great anguish and trouble, and the purpose is that they will repent, that they will see their sin and turn. And furthermore, in verse 3, it says, I will strike her children dead. Likely, those who commit adultery with her and her children are one and the same uh, people. They're all the same people that were, that were called my servants earlier on. And, and for us, we might like to see the sequential following, and these are different people. But, but in the Hebrew mind, you may say the same thing uh, different ways. And so I, I think that's what's... And what's the point? <clears throat> if this great tribulation doesn't lead to your repentance, there's, there's some people that are going to die. For their sin. This, this shows us that there are grave results from their sin. And Jesus takes their sin seriously. And what's the purpose of this judgment in the middle of, of verse 23? And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. It's, it's really, I am he who searches the kidneys in the heart. But <clears throat> that's not our imagery, right? The kidneys were the seat of the emotion. And the heart was the seat of the intellect in the ancient world. But for us, the mind is, is the seat of the intellect. And the heart is the seat of the emotion. So I think translating this... Mind and heart is correct for us. We see this, Jesus penetrating knowledge. I search the mind and the heart. I know. I know my church. I know my people. And this searching mind and heart come from Jeremiah 7.10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind or the kidney. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So Jesus, as God, knows all and knows the condition of his church. And each will receive according to their works. Now I I think, this is just my hypothesis here, I think this is the center of this letter. And, and, and maybe it's the center of all of these letters in this chiastic structure. And what are, what are we to take away from this? That because it says here in verse 23, all the churches will know... <clears throat> In Jesus' discipline here. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the mind and heart and I will give to you each according to your works. What have we learned in these letters? Jesus knows the condition of His church and He rewards each according to their works. And and He knows who who is truly doing good works and who is not truly doing good works. He's the only one that can search the mind and the heart. So I think this is a central statement here that that we're, we're to get. All the churches are to get here. Jesus searches the mind and the heart, and he gives us according to our works. Fifth, the consolation for heeding the correction. Now, not everyone in the church at Thyatira was, was being co-opted by this woman, and so Jesus doesn't lump them all in the same category. Jesus is not like that elementary school teacher that a few kids are acting up and they punish the whole class. No, Jesus knows each and every individual's responsibility and gives to each according to their, their works. So Jesus says to those who who haven't, who don't hold this teaching, you've not been duped, you've not been seduced by this evil woman that you you haven't learned what some call the deep things of Satan. This is a very interesting phrase. What are the deep things of Satan here? Well, there's maybe two possibilities that, that could be likely. First is that Jezebel, the teacher, spouted to know what she called the deep things of Satan. Meaning that she was able to know all the inner workings of Satan and and, and maybe explain how he is working in the pagan environments and all of that. And that knowledge gave her and her followers the ability to participate in all of these Uh, pagan, idolatrous, immoral activities. That we know the deep things of Satan. We've come to know his ways, and we can just now uh, participate in this. So that's a possibility. Second possibility, and the one maybe I think is more likely, is that uh, this is an ironic statement put in here by uh, John who they call the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan is actually uh, <clears throat> a stand-in here for the deep things of God. And so what it would mean is that Jezebel was claiming to teach the deep things of God. That If you, if you came into her, uh, you, you would know the deep things of God, which would give you more freedom and liberty to live in, in this world, we we know from some passages like 1 Corinthians, two ten this this idea of, uh, for the spirit searches everything even the depths of God there there are these deep things of God though the depth and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God Paul ends Romans eleven. And so uh, Jezebel is claiming to know these deep things. But John John twists it here and says, yeah, she's claiming to tell you the deep things of God, but it's actually the deep things of Satan. And similar to what he did in the church of Smyrna, of, like they call themselves Jews, but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. And so uh, this, you know, they're, they're, they think they're going deep with God. They're actually going deep in Satan's things. It's a warning for us here. We don't need to delve too deeply into the works of Satan. We need to know he is our enemy. We need to know his tactics. But we do not need to get into the inner workings of, of Satan's ways i reminded of that story, it was, it was told of C.S. Lewis, he wrote The Screwtape Letters, which if you've read that book, it's, it's a story about a sort of a upper demon telling a, a younger demon how to, to work and seduce, and that book was very successful, and so people came to Lewis and said, you, you need to do more of this, and he said, no, this, this came too easily, and, and he didn't want to have to go any more. I think that's, that's what's going on here. There's a warning for us. We don't need to know the deep things of Satan. So for those who haven't learned these deep things of Satan, for those who haven't followed his teaching, Jesus doesn't lay on them any other burden. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. Hold fast what you have till I come. And what does he promise uh, to the conqueror? In verse 25, Who keeps my works until the end, the conqueror? I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. This is this is language comes coming from Psalm 2, the promise to the, the Davidic heir. And Jesus says, I will make you a sharer in that ruling if you conquer in my name that this uh, idea of, of this same language from Psalm 2 is used in chapter 19, verse 15 of Revelation. From his mouth, this is of Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So Jesus is coming as David's heir, as David's throne, and he will rule this world and those who are aligned with him will rule with him as well. And he says, I will give to you the morning star. What is this morning star? Well, this actually takes us back to the Balaam uh, cycle in in the book of Numbers, particularly Numbers 24, in trying to curse the, the people of God Balaam blesses the people of God, and he gives a wonderful a prophecy of times to come of this of a ruler. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. a star shall come out of Jacob, and a sceptre shall rise out of Israel. it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of sheth of sheth and so uh, the Davidic heir had this promise. There was a star coming. And he was going to rule. And at the, book, at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus himself is called the morning star. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the, for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So once again... Connotations with ruling. And so Jesus says to give Jesus, to give the morning star is to give himself to his people. And we, we have this idea and be reminded of this idea that the conquering of the saints in Revelation is connected to the conquering of Christ. We only conquer because Christ is conquered. And we only conquer in Christ, not on our own. And so Jesus says, "If you if you, if you hold fast to Me, you will you will receive uh, the the benefits of the ruler uh, of the ruling that I, I receive because of my works. In fact, you will receive the reward of being with Me forever." We're told in Revelation 22, 4, And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. What's the great reward of heaven? Is it the fact that we're not in hell? Is it, is it the fact that whatever material benefit, or, or we get to see loved ones, Or as some people describe heaven as you know, just a lifetime fishing opportunity or golfing opportunity that I've been looking forward to. No, what is the ultimate reward of heaven? It's to be with God. Face to face and not die. And there are other benefits to eternity, but that, that is our fundamental hope and desire So Jesus says to to the one who conquers, who holds fast to me, I will give the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This refrain, we hear it again and again and again, and it reminds us, pay attention. Pay attention to what is being said. This is important. And it only comes from the Spirit. Finally here, number six in our outline, the connection to our lives and church. This is some brief application here. A there, seek to grow in your Christian works. Seek to grow in your Christian works. We, we noted the, the commendation, the wonderful commendation that Jesus gives uh, the church here. That your latter works exceed uh, the The former and that 's a good testimony that we should all strive for in our lives individually and in our lives as a church, that our, our works of love and our endurance and our service to one another and our faith should grow over a lifetime of existence that, that as we look at, at a lifetime of a church of 5, 10, 15, 20, 200 years. It's a wonderful testimony to, to look back and say, in our early days, we did this well, and, and now we exceed that more and more and more. Remembering that sanctification is not just this perfect uh, incline, that it is, uh, it is a process but over time, as we step back, we should, we should desire to see a, a slight increase in, in our sanctification. That our desire should be Paul's prayer in Philippians 1 that our love abounds more and more with real knowledge and all discernment, so that we may approve the things which are excellent. And be pure and blameless to the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. We should be desiring that our love grows, our faith grows, and our fruit abounds over our lives. So seek to grow in your Christian work. Second, maintain the exclusive claims of Christianity. That this Roman culture wanted accommodation. You can worship Jesus, you can, have, you can do whatever you want, but worship our gods too. So the problem in the Roman society wasn't the claims of Christianity and all of that, it was the exclusive, exclusivity of the Christian faith. One said, no, there is only one Lord, and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. That Christianity cannot be put on a buffet of equal options for, of religious choices. So in our, our culture as well, that's seeking to uh, want to affirm everyone, we must maintain the exclusive claims of Christianity. That Christ is either Lord and deserves all our allegiance, or he is not Lord and deserves none of it that the God of the Bible claims to be the one and only God. And we have to maintain that. And that's the offense in our culture of, of the exclusivity of the faith. You're telling me you believe that I'm wrong? One of us has to be so that's the offense, but that's the glory of the Christian faith. Because if it is true, then, then the, the reality of that is glorious. But it cannot be equally true with other religious claims. And so we must maintain the exclusivity of the Christian faith. Thirdly, Jesus still disciplines his church to maintain its purity. And this is a sobering point, that some likely died in this congregation because of their failure to repent over this, this sin uh, and, and teaching that they've, they participated in. and we see uh this is not beyond uh Jesus's his <clears throat> work in his church remember the situation around the lord's supper in the, at the church at corinth that that paul said you guys have messed this all up and you you are not uh <clears throat> discerning the lord's blood and and body and some some are some are sick among you and some have fallen asleep some have died. Why? You were, you were treating as, as common what was holy. And, and Jesus came with a severe discipline on his church. And the same is true in, in our day and age, that Jesus, with those same penetrating eyes, watches his church and he seeks to keep it pure. And this, isn't a, this is not uh, to say that we must cause, we must walk around in fear that any time I sin, Jesus can just come up and take me out. But it is a, it is a, a warning for those who labor in, in their unrepentant sin. It is a warning for those who, who seek to live a life one way, but act another way and are bringing a a disgrace to the church of Christ, that Jesus at times disciplines severely to maintain the purity of his church. It reminds us of the seriousness of our sin. It reminds us of the seriousness of corporate sin of a congregation and the need to, to, to maintain the purity in God's church. So Jesus still disciplines his church to maintain Its purity. So that should bring a healthy fear in our lives. Finally, in a pagan society, certain spheres of work may bring great challenges to Christian faithfulness. In a pagan society, certain spheres of work may bring great challenges to Christian faithfulness. It's a bit of a clunky point, but I think. uh, legitimate here, that remember in, in these trade guilds you were often asked to participate in the pagan sacrifices. It was like your union dues, you gotta, you got to please the, the, the trade guild, God, and so if you want to participate in this trade, you got to do this. And maybe depending on the society or, or people's relationship, that was pressed more than others, and as we saw in Smyrna that they were impoverished and that was likely because they found it difficult to maintain jobs uh, without uh, co-opting their faith. And so this is a point to remind us that as it's, in a pagan society, in an increasingly pagan society that sets itself against God, don't be surprised if at least certain spheres of work become a challenge for Christian faithfulness. And, and we're seeing that in, in our nation. Now, there's still great freedom in our nation. You, you may have to go through various court, Battles, and and those seem to turn out great for now, for religious liberty. But there may be a time when that's not the case. I had read a number of years ago that there was a push for people becoming OBGYNs, that they must perform an abortion in order to become one. There there were people that actually want that to be a reality. If you're a Christian seeking that career you're put in in an ethical dilemma. Or or you may be in in an educational context, in a public educational context, as a teacher or administrator, and you're you're required to to teach and espouse things contrary to God's law, or certain spheres of corporate America, or whatever, where we see uh, certain uh, pressures for Christian faithfulness. And, and, and that might be a challenge. There may be a time where it's like, okay, you are required to be a, perform an abortion to be an OBGYN, and then, well, we don't have Christian OBGYNs. Or find other alternatives to this, to this path. So certain spheres of work may bring great challenges to Christian faithfulness. So be reminded tonight that Jesus is Lord of his church. He loves it and he watches over it. He knows our struggle and he gives us strength to overcome all the obstacles that we face. So let us persevere and let us continue to abound in our good works to him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your great mercy to us, Lord. We we are all here who have great privilege of hearing Your Word. We all know more than we actually uh, obey, that we all fall short of Your commands regularly. Forgive us anew, Lord, We thank you that you are merciful and kind to us. We pray that you would give us greater commitment to you. You who search the minds and the heart, might you search our minds and hearts to show us if there is any wickedness or any compromise in our hearts, and might we repent and be renewed and recommitted to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.